We're going to be in Genesis 20 tonight. So let's pray and then we'll jump into our study. Dear Lord, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for, I don't know, I just kind of thank you for the time that we have on Wednesdays where people get to catch up in the middle of the week and see what other families are doing, see how, um, see what needs there are, uh, see how we can be praying for each other. God, I, I pray that we'd always use this time well uh, as we get to catch up on Wednesdays and, and I pray that we'd use the time well as we dig into the Word, as we continue to study through Genesis. I've just become very, <clears throat> very obviously mindful. That it just seems so obvious, God, but you, you've shown us that we, we can't understand any of this without you. Um, even the most simple things that we study in, in Genesis, God, you, you have shown that we have to be completely dependent upon you to have any wisdom and any discernment. And so, God, we pray for that tonight. We pray that before we uh, jump into a new chapter, that we would just... Um, take any traditions, any, uh, any opinions that we have, and that we would be uh, willing and ready to just submit to your word. Um, if, if there's sin that needs to be repented of, I pray that you would make that happen tonight. I pray that you would cause us to be vigilant about that. And, um, I pray that we would cling to truth. We would think of and set our minds on those things that you tell us to set our minds on. I'm thankful for Genesis 20, especially as I've gotten to um, just really kind of dive into it this last week and pray that tonight as we study that you would give us insight, wisdom, and discernment. We're totally dependent upon you tonight, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and open up to Genesis 20. Uh, last week, we finished Genesis 19, and I've kind of had this fear that, you know, we, we finished Genesis 19 and we go into Genesis 20, and my fear is that, you know, Genesis 19 was so edgy and... Uh, so um, scandalous that Genesis 20 would seem boring uh, to everybody. Uh, but let me just put your minds at ease before we begin that Genesis 20 is not boring uh, in comparison to Genesis 19 or anything like that. Those are silly concerns. And what we're going to see tonight is just this unbelievable picture of the gospel. It was one of those, uh, I, I thought that I had made some huge breakthrough while I was studying Genesis 20 this week. I'm studying it, and I'm looking at it, and all of a sudden, at some point, I'm just like, oh my goodness, this is the gospel, oh, and I just would just thought that I had had some, you know, time-altering, mind-blowing breakthrough, and then I pick up a commentary, and it turns out that guy already knew it, and this other guy already knew it, and so that whole nothing new under the sun still stands, but uh, needless to say, I, I, I'm excited about tonight's um, study. Last week we finished in Genesis 19, and one of the things that we looked at in Genesis 19 was this whole cave-dwelling thing. You see Lot, you see him leading his family in such a way that he doesn't want to be uh, necessarily involved with the church family. He, he, he's not eager to return to the hills where his heritage is, where the family of God and the children of God our dwelling, but he'd he'd rather go from you know Sodom to Zoar, and then from Zoar to the hills, and the hills to a cave. And what we found last week was that that mentality leads you to just continue to disconnect and continue to disconnect. And it's this picture of not being searchable until you, you and your family end up in this kind of cave where there's spiritual 
uh, spiritual confusion and where there's rebellion in the home. And that's what we saw last week in uh, Genesis 19. We're going to see some of the same things in Genesis 20. This chapter in Genesis 20 here is a continuation of the previous themes that we've seen uh, throughout Genesis. Uh, I've, I've noticed that my daughters, uh, I have two daughters, my two-year-old, we read books every night before we go to bed, and many of her children's books need to be corrected. They're just not right. The, the children's books have this theme. It's really odd because usually I'll read it, and then I correct it, and I can see Lindsay kind of listening at the door. We kind of like, go easy on her. She's two, you know? <laughs> but it's this picture of the children's books present this epic battle between good and bad, and the good guys always win. And it starts with Adam, and it goes on to Noah, and they picture, they, especially with Noah, they, they depict him as a guy who's the good guy, and God looked down from heaven, and the only good guy on the earth was Noah. And so he killed everybody else, but Noah lived. And, and it's, this, it's kind of this confusing thing, like, really? Is that what happened with Noah? It looks like Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He did not earn it. Um, at all. And so we see this, we want to, um, we have a tendency to do this, I have a tendency to do this, and I might be overstepping a boundary, but I think that we have a tendency to do this. We love to see this epic struggle between the good guy and the bad guy, and we think that we read through the Bible, and the good guys just always win. And so rather than cling to Christ, love the Lord wholeheartedly, we say, be like Adam, or be like Noah, or be like Moses, or be like Abraham. And that's not what we're doing tonight. Uh, the, the point is, is it's not the good guys versus the bad guys. It's that all men are sinners. All men have fallen short. Um, but God redeems, and he's a sovereign God. And the fact that he saves any is, is unbelievable. And so we're going to go to Genesis 20. We're going to see that theme uh, as it continues into this chapter. And we've seen it in previous chapters. So let's just read through the whole chapter, and then we'll go take it a verse at a time. Genesis 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negeb. And lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. This may sound familiar to you all. But God said, But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he, not deny, did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, Return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all of his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that made you do this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. 
Besides, she is indeed my sister and daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do, uh, you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. There is this theme so far, the first 20 chapters of Genesis, where God redeems a people out of a sinful culture, which is very identical to what's going to happen in Revelation. Revelation 18 says, it, it, it quotes God saying, come out of her, my people. God redeeming his children out of worldliness, his children out of just a culture that is influenced only by the world and does not have an eternal kingdom perspective. Now, he's, he, this theme has been pretty continuous through it where someone's redeemed out of something bad, a culture that's really wicked, but then like right afterwards, they kind of fall into a similar sin that they were just redeemed out of. Like think about Noah. God looked down on the earth and he said, every intention of man's heart is only evil all the time, just completely wicked. God redeems Noah. Noah comes off the ark after over a year on this ark and he comes out, the first thing he does is worship and it's just a short amount of time before Noah gets drunk and passes out naked in his tent, which leads to um, one of his sons coming in and looking at him searchingly is what the scripture says. And there's this sin that's like, weren't you redeemed from that? Isn't that what God pulled you from? Why are you falling into that same kind of sin? We saw it with Adam. Here we're seeing it with Abraham. Uh, We saw it with Lot. Lot. The angels picked his sorry behind up, carried him out of the town, said, run for your life. He he is drawn out of that, that whole, come out of her, my people. Lot, you're mine. I'm taking you out of here, and I'm wiping out Sodom and Gomorrah. And then we see him in the cave, which we talked about last week, falling into similar sin. And it continues this dialogue that we have that it is God who is great, no man. The goal of every study that we have, you're never going to hear us say, be like anyone other than God. Yeah, we might pattern our lives after faithfulness, but even these faithful men have times of faithlessness. And this is a theme that we see. And that should be something that we can all relate to. I mean, it's not something we look at like, oh, they have, they have seasons of faithlessness? Do you have seasons of faithlessness? I don't have seasons. We all have seasons of faithlessness but we're people of faith. And so what that causes us to do is rather than look at a man and say, be like this man, don't be like this man, they're a loser, I'm going to compare myself to them, whatever, we cling to Christ. We, we, we keep our eyes fixed on the things above, not the things of the earth. So in Genesis 20, right off the bat, this territory, they journeyed toward the territory of Negev between Kadesh and Shur, soldiers in Gerar. This is the territory of the Philistines. Uh, what do we know? Does anybody know anything about Philistines at all? Really big, especially that one guy. He was Goliath. What else do we know? 
these guys, uh, the Philistines, what was their biblical relation to Israel? Were they buddies? No. No, they, they were, for the most part, just really bitter enemies. Every now and again, they would, uh, you know, they'd, the Israelites would go down and get their swords sharpened and it was by the Philistines, but it, di- it didn't go much further than that. It, it's interesting. All the archaeological evidence suggests that the Philistines were very advanced uh, an advanced society. The archaeological evidence that, that has been found points to the fact that the Philistines were advanced in, um, what was it, uh, the ways of war, uh, ironsmithing, uh, technology, and even art. They were even advanced in the arts. The Bible doesn't really focus on what the archaeological evidence focuses on. What the Bible includes about the Philistines is, yes, they were a powerful people, but they were a powerful people who were barbaric, and they were very brutal. Brutal, barbaric, powerful people. And so this is the territory that Father Abraham is going into. And so uh, verse 2, it's just one verse. We don't get a whole lot of explanation. It just says uh, he's going into this Philistine territory. It's pretty obvious he has a preconceived idea about the way that the Philistines are. He's not like, oh, they'll probably welcome us with open arms, give us some food. Probably not. He says, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Has this happened before? Does this sound familiar to anybody? Like Egypt, maybe? This happened in Egypt. He did the same thing in Egypt. Um, Calvin observes, Abraham, forgetful of the great danger which had befallen him in Egypt, once more strikes his foot against the same stone. That's very poetic to say he goofed up again. He did the same thing again. Um, In this one verse, what is revealed about Abraham? This one verse, what is revealed about it in verse 2? What do we see about Abraham? Who does he fear? The Philistines. Does he mention fearing anybody else there? No. I wish he did, but he doesn't. Who does he fear? He fears the Philistines. I heard one commentator say, not only does it reveal, uh, uh, reveal that he... He obviously fears man above God, but it also shows that he's very unthankful towards God. And this commentator very eloquently said, if you were 100 years old and your wife was 90 years old and the Lord had preserved her in such a way that she was so hot that you would go into a town and they're just going to kill you and take her from you because she was so hot, you must not be very thankful if you're just willing to just give her over to the king and say, well, she's my sister. So we see unthankfulness here. Um, he was the only guy that I read that said that, but I thought it was interesting nonetheless. Um, questions. Uh, has anyone ever sinned, learned a lesson, and eventually found themselves in that same sin? You don't have to show your hands or anything. That's pretty sadly common. Uh, w- the reason I'm saying that is not to say it's okay. We all do that. I'm just saying we can relate to this. We don't have to look at Abraham and say, what an idiot, man. He didn't learn anything in Egypt. It, pff, this guy's a bonehead, right? Father Abraham, whatever. I, I'm not singing the song anymore, you know? And he's, he's a guy that we can relate to because it's, it's, not, it's not a stretch for us to say, yes, I have found myself in some kind of sin, and God taught me something in that. And then I found myself even going back to that sin. And come thou fount, the song, come thou fount, I'm prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Our sin nature will always try to lead us away from the Lord. But the Lord is bigger than that. He's greater than that. And so rather than judge Abraham and compare ourselves 
uh, to him, what should our response be? What do you think, our, rather than saying, wow, that Abraham's a moron, hope I'm not like him, what should our response be rather than trying to compare ourselves? <laughs> you are exactly right. Be thankful that God is a God who redeems, that God is a God who saves, that God is a God who guides, that God is a God who loves, that God is a God who gives us any kind of insight into helping us do the right thing. And one of the things that uh, we're going to see here in a minute is that not only is God a God who helps us to do the right thing, but he oftentimes will keep us from doing the wrong thing. And we're going to see that here in these next few verses. In verses 3 through 4, it says, But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Okay, this actually happened. Can you imagine having a dream where God comes to you and says, you're a dead man? That would shake things up. That, that wouldn't be like, oh, what a weird dream. I had a weird dream. God told me I'm a dead man. What do you think that means? I think it means you're a dead man. <laughs> a dream. God says, you're a dead man. This is terrifying. I heard one guy explaining it where he, every time he reads this, he hears kind of this Tony Soprano kind of, you're a dead man, you know, kind of a voice when, when he hears God coming to him. It says, uh, what's, um, when, I, when we look at this, God comes to him in a dream. You are a dead man. The Lord, creator of all things, no one more powerful, no king higher, says you're a dead man. What are the specifics that God includes in his rebuke here? Th- those two verses, verses 3 and 4, what, what are the specifics that God includes in his rebuke? Why is he rebuking Abimelech? He took a man's wife. In case there's a lack of clarity, God is not cool with that at all. You're a dead man, Abimelech. You have messed up. What is God's view of marriage? Sacred? Yes, it's representative of the relationship with the, the bride, the bride. You get, you're starting to see these marriage example bride of Christ, Christ the, the groom, and the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelations. Marriage exists as a representation of the relationship between the church and God. I mean, this, this relationship, I mean, you see in Ephesians, um, uh, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Not just however you want. Don't just think you can bring flowers and that's just okay and that's all you got to do. You love her as Christ loved the church. Uh, Wives, submit to your husband as the church submits to Christ. It's not so hard if the husbands are loving the wife as Christ loved the church. God has a very, 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 very high view of marriage. It is representative of his plan. In Hebrews 13.4, you can jot it down, you don't have to turn there. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let the marriage bed be held in honor among all. It's interesting, it says all there. I'm thinking of Abimelech. He's not an Israelite. He's king in this area here with the Philistines. And it says, let the marriage bed be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled or God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. What Abimelech is, is um, every, the table is set for adultery here. This is the problem. The sexual sin have y'all noticed this theme? Like every chapter in, there's this sexual sin. It's almost like it's this prevalent thing that, that, uh, that is in every chapter we're looking at. it. So 
um, the, the table is set. If, if things continue in the way they have been going, the table is set for adultery here, sexual immorality and adultery, which God will judge. Now, interesting, what does God say is the consequence of sin? Death. Not, ooh, I'm going to oh, hold that over your head. I'm going to make you feel good. Death. The consequence of sin is death. Now look at verse 5. Did he not himself say to me, she's my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands? I have done this. Do you think Abimelech has a case? Does he have a case? Is he innocent or guilty? I mean, they, they did say she was a sister, and I guess officially she is. I mean, is he okay? Is he excused? Innocent or guilty? Does he have a case? Verses 6 and 7 kind of show us what God's view of this is. Verses 6 and 7 say, um, and, and the reason I ask, does he have a case, is this. It, when we're reading this, and it's so it's, it's awkward. It's like, well, Abraham did mislead him, and so did Sarah, but maybe he shouldn't have brought her in in the first place, whether she was married or not. Maybe that's just sexual immorality anyway. But, but wait, but he wasn't wrong, but God said he was okay. It gets confusing. Our goal is not to figure out who's innocent and who's guilty. Everyone's wrong. Everyone has done something wrong here, and it is God who redeems. They're not earning anything in the way of God's favor. So, so we need to look at what God says to Abimelech in verses 6 through 7. It says this. God says this. Then God said to him in the dream, he's just said, you're a dead man. You took another man's wife. And now he says, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you don't return her, know that you will die, surely. Like, no question about it. If you don't return her, uh, yeah, surely you will die. You're a dead man, like I said at the beginning of the dream. Yes, it was from the integrity of his heart. King Abimelech, from the integrity of his heart. Even God says, yes, it is in the integrity of your heart. I agree with you. But God doesn't let him go further than that. Notice Abimelech says, it was the integrity of the heart and the innocence of of my hands. God's saying, yeah, yeah, it's in the integrity of your heart, but that's not the measure that I use to say who's right and wrong. Like Just because you think there's integrity in your heart, that's not how I judge between um, th- these kinds of things. And also, it's not the innocence of your hands. It's not you being innocent with your hands. God's saying, I am God. I kept you from sinning. I'm the one who did this. I, it is I who kept you from sinning. So two things. Um, turn over to Proverbs 21.2 to kind of ex- explain this a little bit. Proverbs 21, verse 2. And I guess, uh, as we read this, in Romans 14, it says, anything done outside of faith is sin. Anything, everything, all things done outside of faith is sin. Nothing done outside of faith can be anything but sin. Keep that in mind as we read this, because what I'm seeing here is a godless king saying, it was in the integrity of my heart. I didn't know she was married. Let's not talk about what I 
what the plan was anyway, whether she was married or not, but it was in the integrity of my heart, God, and, and the innocence of my hands. And God says, it was the integrity of your heart, but the integrity of your heart is still filthy. And the reason you didn't do it was because of me, but his thinking is explained in Proverbs 21, verse 2. It says, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. See, the Lord is saying, yeah, in your own eyes, the integrity of your heart is good, but I'm weighing that heart according to my standard, not your standard. We do these kinds of things a lot where we'll, we'll sin, but it's not so bad. And we kind of say, no, it's not that, you know, it's just little. And I had to do it because if I didn't do this or if I didn't say this, then this would happen. So I'm actually okay. Sin is sin. Anything done outside of faith is sin. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Now, this is really interesting. Turn over to Psalm 105. Just back to the left, just a little bit. Psalm 105, verses 12 through 15. It's really cool when you find things in Scripture that are kind of really far apart, but they're so specific to each other that all it does is just solidify that God is huge, He has a plan, and He has a design, and there are no flaws in it. Think about what we, have, what we read here in Genesis 20, and look at Psalm 105, verses 12 through 15. It says, When they were few in numbers, of little account, and sojourners in it, Wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another, from the nation of the Egyptians to the nation of the Philistines, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account saying, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. That is really specific. This psalm, it's, this is the kind of thing that when we talked about in Psalm 127 where we said, you know, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. And then we see that call for one generation to commend the greatness of God to the next generation. That's what that psalm is doing. They're looking back and saying, God is so great because a guy named King Abimelech wanted to bring Sarah into his harem and, and do bad things. And God did, did not let him do that. And so we praise God for that. When, when it says, let the greatness of God be known from one generation to the next, that's what Psalm 105 is doing. It's looking back and saying, God is great because he didn't allow anyone to oppress him. He rebuked the king, King Abimelech, in his dream. He rebuked him, said, you're a dead man, totally freaked him out. And then he said, touch not my anointed ones. Sarah is anointed with a child, the promised child. She's with child at this point, which shows us how big of a moron Abraham's being. And... He says, do my prophets no harm. It's interesting in, uh, in that, well, we'll come back to the prophet thing. So just to make it clear, who keeps you from sinning? God. We ha- it's, have you ever had some kind of sin or something that just creeps in all the time? And, and you kind of conquer it. You kind of feel like, man, I'm getting a hold on this thing. And you kind of feel proud of yourself for doing that. I mean, it happens on the, you know, those day-to-day things like, um, I'll just, uh, gluttony. We'll throw that out there. We'll just throw that out there. Uh, I love to eat as much as I possibly can when I sit down at a table and, and not take a breath until I'm done. I love doing that. My family profile, my great-grandfather, my grandfather, and my father are all five foot eight, 
and they look the exact same. They got this profile, this big old pot belly profile. And I kind of thought, man, I want to break that. I'd like to break that cycle. Um, I'm a little taller. Maybe I can break that cycle. And, but I still have, I love, my family's in the food industry. My granddad started this deal. And I'm like sitting here, every meal I go to, I just love eating. I really do. And so um, sometimes I'll be like, oh man, that, that is sinful for me to just love that so much and to love dessert so much. That is sinful. And so I'm going to try and not do that. And then for maybe for like a week, I'll do real well. And, and, and all of a sudden I kind of, man, I did pretty good. I kind of kept myself from the sin of gluttony. I didn't keep myself from anything. It's the same way with uh, guys who have a problem controlling their mouth and controlling their tongue. You can, you can kind of become proud of yourself a little bit if you think, man, I got a cussing problem. And then you find yourself spending a whole week and you really control your tongue and you kind of, man, I really kept myself from sinning. No, it is God who keeps us from sinning. So how should this affect our attempts towards repentance? Repentance is good. Put the sin to death in your lives, but how does it affect our approach? We're dependent upon God. Yeah, the Sunday school answer. Jesus, yes. We're dependent upon Jesus. It's interesting because I've talked to guys who are, um, they're intimidated about um, really kind of, okay, I'm, I'm going to turn from whatever sin. And for instance, like making a covenant with your eyes. I've talked to some guys who are like, man, a covenant's a serious thing. And that's pretty hard. I don't know if I kind of want to take that step out there and say, I'm going to make a covenant with my eyes because what if I don't? What if I break the covenant? And then I'm just sinning even more against God. Oh, my goodness. You depend on God. You hold on to the Lord. You keep your eyes fixed on the things above. And you make that covenant knowing it is the Lord who keeps me from sinning. It is not myself. It is not in my own power. I can try my hardest. The thing, like, there's kind of this approach when I was growing up. Reach down deep inside and find what you need to do what you need to do. And it was like the deeper I reach, the darker it gets. I'm a sinful person. So the point is you need God. You need the Lord to do this. The Lord is who keeps you from sinning. And that should affect our approach towards repentance because we no longer have this works-based thing like, if I do this, Jesus will love me more. No. He redeems. He is the one who keeps you from sinning. Now, interestingly, going back to, go ahead and go back over to Genesis 20. This is the first time, Genesis 20, the, the verses we were just in, verses uh, 7 there. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. If you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, and all who are yours will also die. This is the first time that anyone's ever referred to as a prophet in the Scriptures. It's the first time anyone's ever referred to as a prophet. Does anybody have any questions about what a prophet is, what prophecy is, if prophecy still exists? Does it, just a show of hands if you have any questions about it. No questions? That's, that's fantastic. This room, can, okay, I'm going to sit down. Will you all tell me what all this stuff is with prophecy? I think next week we're, we might have at least a majority of the time talking about prophecy, talking about the gift of prophecy. Because in the Scriptures it tells us that it's something that we should earnestly desire. We should earnestly desire to have the gift of prophecy. But a lot of us have this vision of prophecy like it's some uh, magic trick uh, psychic ability. Like I have the gift of pro- like I was joking with some friends last night that I had a prophetic vision on the way over to, to see them. And it was just, I was making a joke about it. 
but we have this thing like a prophetic vision or the gift of prophecy as if it's some psychic ability where it's just, it trumps scripture. Um, there are some many specifics about uh, prophecy and I think that we're going to take some time next week to talk about those. So if you have any questions, which I'm glad y'all don't, but if you do, if you think of any, bring them with y'all next week because I think we're going to um, take a, a closer look at that, possibly, likely. What we need to know on this is that a prophet is mouthpiece of God. A prophet is one who has been made familiar with the ways of God by God. A prophet is not a person who just is um, some intellectually, theologically elite person who just knows a lot because they're so smart. The only way that a prophet has any value that they can be a mouthpiece of God is because they've been made, God's ways have been made known to that person by God. The only way that any of us know anything about God's design and God's will is by God. And it's not any different for a prophet. And so the prophet is um, just simple, and it may be an oversimplification, but it's okay. A prophet is a mouthpiece of God. So Abraham here is a mouthpiece of God. Abraham here has a message, has a design, has a will that God has made known to him that he is going from place to place so that he can make it known and continue to um, play his part in God's redemptive pattern over all of history. So we'll go into more details on that next week. So consider what God has said to Abimelech. Just take it all into account and tell me if this begins to sound familiar. God says to Abimelech, you have sinned against me. You are a dead man. If you repent, you will not die. Rather, a prophet will intercede for you and you will experience healing. Let me say that again because I think this is pointing to something bigger than just this little situation here in the nation of the Philistines. God is saying to Abimelech, you have sinned against me. You are a dead man. If you repent, you will not die. Rather, if you repent, a prophet will intercede for you and you will experience healing. It's like an altar call almost, kind of like you're, you're a dead man. And we have a hard time saying that to people. We have a hard time going to people and saying, uh, do you have sin in your life? No. Okay, let's walk through that. And then you tell them what sin is. Oh, yeah, I got a lot of that. And, okay, you're a dead man. What? But if you repent, you won't die. If you repent, the only way to rightly repent is, is because God draws you to it in Christ. And in Christ, Christ is an intercessor who... Through the present in Jesus, you'll experience healing. This is the epitome of the sharing of the gospel. God is coming to him in a dream saying, you're a dead man because you've sinned against me. But if you repent, you won't die. And a prophet, Jesus, will intercede, and here it's Abraham, but it's really pointing to Jesus, will intercede for you and you will experience healing. This is where we're getting to see this big, cool picture of the gospel. I love verse 8. I love verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called his servant. I mean, can you imagine you had that dream? God, you're a dead man. If you don't repent, you're really going to die. But you can repent and you'll experience healing by the interceding of a prophet. Abimelech gets up early. This is a good response. If God calls you to something, if God exposes a sin in your life, it's great not to drag your feet. It's great to just get up early. Get up early, get to work on what needs to be done in the way of obedience. Abimelech got up early. This is a good response. Now look at verses 8 through 10. Abimelech rose early in the morning and called his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, This is like what Pharaoh said, What'd you do? What have you done to us? 
How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? It seems that Abimelech, seeing the severity of what happened, you know, the dream where God says you're a dead man, seeing, feeling, experiencing that severity, hearing the actual voice of God call him a dead man, call him to repentance, It seems that in seeing that, he really wants to get to the bottom of why Abraham put his kingdom in this situation. And it seems like you can almost sense him saying, please explain this to me so that I can make sure this doesn't happen again. He's kind of wigging out about this. Things have been turned upside down for him. You can see him saying, tell me why why you did this so I can make sure as a king that I don't make the same mistake again, that this doesn't happen again. And then we go to verses 11 through 13 and we see Abraham's Response. This is Abe's reason. This is the reasoning that he gives. Verses 11 through 13. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister and daughter of my father, though not daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Save me, he is my brother. Do you think Abraham has a case? We already asked, does Abimelech have a case? Do you think Abraham has a case? What's revealed about Abraham in his, expo- in his explanation? What do we see more of in the explanation that he gives? We've already seen what he's done. Now he gives an explanation of why he did it. What do we see in Abraham's explanation? What? Blame. Who's he sound like here? Adam! Yes! They're hiding behind the tree in the Garden of Eden. They're naked, and they're hiding behind a tree from God. This is ridiculous. It's God. They're hiding behind a tree. God calls out, where are you? As if he doesn't know. God can see through trees. Um, he made them. And, uh, and, and, and Adam plays the blame game. It was her, it was a serpent, it's, it's, whatever it is, it's not my fault. Abraham sounds like his forefather here. He sounds a lot like him. Again, his fear was of the people. His fear was of what would happen to him. So much so that he is willing to let his wife go into the harem of the king. We have a name for people. We have a name for people that do that to women. That would send women into a place like that for their own benefit to make sure they're okay. We have a name for that. Moving on. Brad's sermon this last week, it's interesting. He he one of the things that Brad said in his sermon was um he said that he he interviews college students, and those college students he always asks, What is the Lord teaching you from the word? And they always respond with, oh, he's teaching me patience, you know, my car broke down, or whatever. And he, and he expressed that he asks people, what is the Lord teaching you from the Word? What have you learned from the Word? And they give him an answer that says life experience. My life experience taught me this. Abraham's doing the same thing here. He's guilty of that same thing that Brad explained in his sermon. Abraham is expressing his life experience and how it shaped his decision. He did not, you don't hear him saying, you know what, I'm her husband. You want to... You want to get to her? You've got to go through. You're going to have to cut my head off to get to her. I'm going to protect her. I'm going to protect her, 
her innocence. I'm going to protect the child that's in her womb. I'm going to do everything I can to protect her. God holds marriage in high regard. We only have marriage because God designed it. And that bride of mine is someone you're not going to touch. He doesn't say that. He says, hey, honey, just go with it. His decision was based on life experience. He thought, man, these Philistines, I've heard about them. They're pretty brutal. They're powerful. Um, they're, they're barbaric. I don't even want to risk it. Honey, just go. Just go to, go to the harem. Go to the harem. Go. This is horrible. This is wicked. His decision was based on a life experience, not the word, not what God has revealed to him. Verse 14. This is where I get confused. I'm going to read it, then I'll explain why I'm confused. Then I'll explain why I'm not confused. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants. Like he just got that. That was, <laughs> that's Abraham's excuse. And this is the response. Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother, Abimelech's got a sense of humor here, given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech. We'll get to that part in a minute. Verse 14 is so confusing. I often wonder, often recently, not always. It's not like I was eight years old wondering about this. I recently have often wondered how we're affected by uh, the America that we live in uh, when it comes to really understanding the Bible. What I mean is that I wonder how the absence of kings um, in our understanding of government affects our understanding of this situation. Like, we don't know what it's like to be under the authority of a king in our government. What do we get to do in our government? If we want something done, what does everybody get to do? Vote. If a king says, off with their head, the person doesn't say, I'd like to make an appeal. I, give me the paperwork. I am not going for that. Can we vote on this? Can, can we vote? I don't want to lose my head. Can we vote on this? And this, I wonder, we, we, it's affected our churches. A majority of our churches vote on everything. A majority of our churches don't have elder leadership. They vote on the color of the carpet, the color of the walls, the, everything. Everything's a vote. I wonder how the absence of kings affects the way that we view this. Because if a king makes a statement like, you're dead, you're dead. There's, no, there's not an appeal process. It's not a, a vote on everything. It's not, let me get my people together and we'll rally, we'll do whatever. This is just kind of a bam. What, what, set, what he says goes. And I wonder how that affects our view of this because I'm looking at this king's response and it just doesn't add up. It's bizarre to me. If we can feel the weight of how that king could just say, and wipe you out, it would appre we would be able to appreciate this response more. So let's look at the response and consider the power that a king has, especially in a powerful, advanced nation where uh, they're barbaric and brutal about everything. I mean, these are guys who, like when, when they conquered, uh, it was Saul, he cut his head off, he and his sons were up in uh, the... Uh, and they went and cut their head off, and they were barbaric. And they, there was just so many. I was reading through Samuel earlier today, and there's so many things that they were brutal and barbaric about. And um, 
I want us to take that into account as we look at the king's response here. They're known as one of the most powerful and barbaric thing, uh, nations. And this doesn't add up. What does the king say? Here's a lot of stuff. Here. Here. No, here. Take it. 20 pieces of silver is the equivalent of us today of a couple million dollars. I didn't make that up. I looked it up. It's the equivalent of a couple million dollars. So what's being said is, here's livestock, here's servants, here's a lot of stuff, and on top of it, here's some spending money. A couple million bucks worth of spending money. Abraham sinned against the king. The king has the authority to bring your end quicker. The king has the authority to do whatever he wants. You wronged me. I'm the king. You brought this to my kingdom. Not only am I going to kill you, I'm going to torture you first. I'm going to parade you around here, and I'm going to let everybody see. I'm going to make a point that you don't do this to the king. But God came to the king in a dream and said, you're a dead man. You better repent. You better give her back. Abraham sinned against the king and was somehow rewarded abundantly. Abraham sinned against the king and was somehow rewarded abundantly. The king is saying, you sinned against me. Here is an abundance of riches. And on top of that, I'll give you a home in my kingdom. See what it says there? It says, and Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. I'm going to give you an abundance of riches. And on top of that, I'm going to give you a home in my kingdom. You are innocent and you are vindicated. Is this starting to sound familiar? This is the gospel. Turn to Ephesians 1. This was my aha moment this week that everyone had figured out already. Way before me. Ephesians 1. He sinned against the king. He's rewarded abundantly. He's given a home in the kingdom. He is considered innocent and vindicated. Ephesians 1, verses 7 and 8. In him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And then look over at chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We'd sinned against the king. He had every right and and no reason not to just wipe us out, annihilate us brutally. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So no one can boast. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Anytime we study anything, Old Testament, New Testament, whatever it is, just ask, where's Jesus? This is where Jesus is. This is the gospel. This is a picture of the gospel. We should be blown away by this. We should be floored at the mercy and the grace. The riches of his grace lavished upon us with all wisdom and insight. There's nothing lacking there. All of it. Rich in mercy, great in love, made alive in Christ, raised us up, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, immeasurable riches, the gift of God. We have sinned against the king. And so it's weird. I look at this and I'm thinking, this doesn't add up. This doesn't add up at all. Abraham sinned against the king and the king said, here's an abundance of riches. You can have a home in my kingdom and you're considered innocent and you're vindicated. That's what God has done with his children. We've sinned against the king. He's saying, I'm blessing you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. I'm not holding back here. I'm God and I have an abundance of riches you can't wrap your head around and I'm just lavishing it upon you. Oh, did you earn it? No. I'm a merciful, graceful God. I'm not giving you what you deserve. I'm giving you that which you don't deserve. And I'm going to give you a home in my kingdom. And for everyone who's watching... Uh, you're declared innocent and vindicated. This is the gospel. This, uh, this blew me away today. Abraham's faithless actions should make us enjoy God more. Well, we could look at Abraham's faithless actions and say, what an idiot. What a moron. He's just dumb. Just don't be like Abraham in this situation. And maybe next week we can say, be like Abraham. No, that's not the point. The point here is we should look at the faithless actions of Abraham and it should make us enjoy God more. Because God is continually faithful. We should not judge Abraham and compare ourselves to him. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, you can jot it down in your notes, you don't have to turn there. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. That's what God did here with Abraham. Abraham was faithless. He was a man of faith who had a season of faithlessness. And God remained faithful. Titus 3.5 says, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And then it's interesting, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 6 through 17. The people of God are not described as these solid cast iron vessels of strength. Like we like to think that. I'm this unshakable vessel of strength and refined iron with some gold trim. That's not what we are. We are common and we're fragile. Yeah, I've told that to people, and they're like, what? No, not me. Ah, I'm not coming to fragile. This, 2 Corinthians, turn to it. I'd do a total injustice if I just try to. 2 Corinthians 4, just start in verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. In, the, in like Middle Eastern digs and things like archaeological digs, you know what they find a lot of? Broken pieces of pottery. They don't usually start digging like, oh, look, an entire pot perfectly um, taken care of. And there's, it's no broken pieces. Almost every single one of them are broken. Why? 
And they're everywhere. Why? Because they're common and they're fragile. That's what God is saying. He's saying, you, my children, my vessels of mercy that I'm going to use however I want, you are common and you are fragile. Not so that you can say, I'm common and fragile. I'm a, why'd you sin? I'm common and fragile. Why are you so defiant and foolish in your decision? I'm common and fragile. That's not why God says this. He does it for the reason that it is made known that the surpassing power belongs to him not to us. So when we look at Abraham or Noah or Adam or anybody else, we don't look at them and say, be like them. We look at them and say they're common and they're fragile, just like us. Why? So that it is made known that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to any man. We can't earn his favor. Who is it being made known to? It says it's being so that it is made known that the surpassing power belongs to God. Who's it being made known to? us, the world, everybody. That's that bright light that shines when you go to work. The salty, bright, aromatic people that we're supposed to be. It's not because look at us, we're these people that are bright and salty and aromatic because we're strong. We are common and we're fragile. It is God who has all of the surpassing power. Not just a little power, surpassing power. Power that surpasses our shortcomings and our failures. So what is the only, I mean, this is the point. we we got to get this. What is the only possible way to put sin to death in your life? Cling to Christ. Christ. God, he does it. Cling to Christ, the intercessor. Jesus. You could have just said Jesus. We would have totally gone with that. Cling to Christ, the intercessor. It's interesting. It it says that um, Abraham was a prophet, and uh, the prophet interceded with a prayer. The way that we can pray and God hears us is because Jesus intercedes for us. That's the only way. That's why when you say, thank you for our food, in Jesus' name, amen. We pray in Jesus' name because we have no other right to go before God. We cannot go to God in any other way but in Jesus' name. Jesus Christ is the only way that we have a right to go to God. Verses 17 through 18, that prophet intercedes. We'll read it. Go back to Genesis 20. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, just like God said, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. A prophet intercedes for the sinner by command of the king of kings, and the sinner experiences healing. Just take it in reverse order. If you've experienced any healing in your life, you are a sinner who has experienced healing because of the king of kings commanded his son to intercede for you. It's like, but what do I do? Well, you be obedient. You respond obediently. You do your gut level best to put that glory on display. Remember, we're wanting to make it known that the surpassing power belongs to him. Not us. That's what it means to glorify God, to put his glory on display, to live in such a way that this God who seems very distant to so many other people, to so many people you just walk by in the street, you want to live in such a way that you take that, their view of God being so distant, and you live in a way where all of a sudden they're seeing his work in your life because his surpassing power is greater than your failings, and you're just a common, fragile vessel, and they're saying, where'd you get that? Why are you living like that? Well, how does that work? I don't even get that. That didn't even make sense. Why are you happy? What is that? And all of a sudden, people are seeing this, this God that they thought was far distant and aloof and disconnected from his people here. 
they see his glory put on display in the lives of his children because they're common and they're fragile, but they're held together by a God whose power surpasses everything. In conclusion, have you ever been to a funeral? That's a likely conclusion, isn't it? What types of things are usually said at a funeral? What types of things are usually said at a funeral? Good things. It's not normal that you go to a funeral and they say bad things, right? Usually, we try to take the best things that we can remember about a person and share those things in a hope to leave a legacy about the greatness of that person. Isn't that pretty much every funeral you've been to? People share as many great things about that person in hopes to leave a legacy of the greatness of that person so that when we remember that person, we think of good things, not bad things. You don't usually hear family and friends, today we mourn the death of so-and-so. He was a sinner. He was a loser. His best was filthy rags. He often fell into the same sin over and over again, even after hearing the voice of the Lord tell him that it was wrong. Thank goodness that our God is great and merciful. Let's pray. That's not what you normally hear at a funeral. You don't normally hear people expressing something negative about a person at their funeral. This is a reason that I love the Bible. The Bible is honest. It could not, man could not and would not have written it. There's too much dirty laundry included. Think about it. Think about it. You're writing something and it, really Abraham did this twice. Oh, he did it in Egypt, didn't, didn't, didn't fix it up. And by the time he got to the nation of the Philistines, he's, he's going to do this again. He, he did that to Sarah. And the second time she had a baby, she had a baby. Oh, don't include that. Don't write that down. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is breathed out by God. In doing so, God wants us to not aspire to be like Noah or Adam or Abraham, but rather cling to him. He is the king of kings who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And just like every single one of our forefathers, none of us has done a single solitary thing to earn any of those blessings. We, like those before us, have sinned, not only against the lowercase key kings, K, kings of the earth, but against the king of kings. And by no merit of our own, he has mercifully deemed us innocent and vindicated, and he's blessed us with eternal riches in Christ and giving us a home in his kingdom. When we repent and seek to put sin to death in our lives, when we actually see sin in our lives and we, and we seek to put that sin to death as we're called to and really experience real repentance, this is not an attempt to earn the favor of the King of Kings. What that is is an obedient response to the love and mercy that he's given us to be able to repent of the sin. So the big point is God is great. We're all sinners. We're fragile. We're common. And we need him. Cling to him. Don't try anything your own way. I mean, every, I could pro- we could probably go around the room and, and everyone could name something they're struggling with. Some kind of sin. I mean, think about it in your own head. What is that? What are the sins that are, are constant? You feel like you're constantly battling with them. In 2 Corinthians, right before that part that we read earlier, it says that the God of this world, lowercase g God, wants to blind the minds of the unbelievers from seeing the glory of God that is in the face of Christ. Satan desperately wants to blind everybody from seeing God's glory. We do not try to put sin to death and be pure in hopes of gaining God's approval. 
We do it as an obedient response to the mercy and grace that he has given us that would enable us to do it anyway. And so next week, we're going to look at more faithful people being boneheads, being redeemed by a great God who is very merciful. Think, I mean, and, th- and personalize this. As y'all go home tonight and talk about it as your families. Think about that personal nature of sinning against the king and then the king giving you an abundance of, of riches, a home in his kingdom, and declaring you innocent and vindicated. And how that just doesn't even add up. Th- that should humble us greatly. It should bring us down a notch. I, I've heard that the, the, I've heard it said that the ground at the foot of the cross is very level. We, we can look at each other and we can begin to love each other the right way. Community is happening the right way when we have this response to a holy God who has given us that which we don't deserve and not given us that which we do deserve. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus was not an afterthought so that we could have a New Testament in our Bibles. We thank you that from the beginning, your plan has been perfect. We thank you that we can look back at Genesis chapter 20, see an encounter with Abraham, Father Abraham, who makes a bad decision and shows a lack of faith, and that you redeem him, and that not only do you do that, but you intercede, and, and in a dream, you, you keep a king from oppressing your people that you care for your children in such a way that you would intercede into the dreams of a faithless king so as to protect your children because your plan's perfect, because your design has no flaws in it whatsoever. God, I'm thankful that in Genesis chapter 20, we see Jesus all over the place, the gospel all throughout it. We see prophets interceding so that there's healing in the life of sinners. We see kings lavishing riches upon people who don't deserve it at all. We see people who have done horrible things to a king being given a home in the kingdom and considered innocent and vindicated. Let that just do what it needs to do to us in making us humble, making us approach you rightly, and making us love each other the right way. God, we pray uh, that you would be glorified in our lives. We desire to leave here not exalting any man at all, not exalting each other, but I desire that we would encourage one another so that we can let it be made known in these common and these fragile lives, which are easily breakable, but not shattered, uh, not annihilated, that these lives that you've given us that are designed perfectly Um, We pray that in these lives, you would make it known to everyone we encounter that the surpassing power belongs to you. And if anybody sees anything good in any of us, it's made known that it's because of you. You are a merciful, loving, sovereign, wonderful king of kings above all. There's no one like you. God, we thank you for Jesus. And we pray each of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.